Job cries against the meaninglessness of suffering. The psalmist says that despite suffering in the world, God remains good, kind, and powerful. And the gospel shows Christ's victory over death and suffering. Welcome to the Scripture Commentary Series. Today I am discussing the readings for the fifth Sunday of Ordinary Time. Remember to like, comment, share, subscribe, leave a review, do all the things. Help me to appease the fickle and pernicious algorithm gods. Also, you can ask me a question and I will answer it on the podcast. You can ask me by emailing me at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. Our first reading today comes from the book of Job. Now, the book of Job is a very complex, if not controversial book. There's a lot going on here particularly with the issue of the problem of evil and the problem of suffering and how we balance that with the existence of an all-good, all-loving, all-kind, all-powerful God. It's a bit of a shame because our particular passage, the one that we get for the fifth Sunday of Ordinary Time, kind of depicts Job as nihilistic or depicts him as kind of uh, saying that man's life, as the reading says, is nothing but drudgery. Uh, there's there's no kind of meaning or all that man longs for is shade and he works for his money and that's sort of it. And that's not really very fair to the book of Job and it, or it doesn't kind of show the full picture because Job is actually very hopeful. He actually insists on the inherent or fundamental goodness of God. That's part of his pain and his frustration and his sufferings is that he believes that God, despite everything that's happened to him, is still good and is still just. So we we don't really get a fair picture from the passage, from this, again, narrow passage today, this isolated passage. However, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the passage at face value. I know that it's being kind of taken out of context and that in its isolated form, it's not fair to the prophet Job. But just remember, what I am talking about is this particular passage and not Job on the whole. So the passage today. On the surface, again, it's a little bit nihilistic. He says that man's life is pain and all he kind of works for is, is shade and he waits for his wages. And in another way we could say this is there's really nothing to his life other than longing for shade, that is longing for comfort, and working to make money for that comfort. So life is this kind of cycle of desiring comfort, but in order to get comfort, you have to work for it. When you work for it, all you desire is to be comfortable again. And that's man's life. There, there's no immediate or obvious meaning to the work that he does. It's just pain and suffering and this endless cycle of seeking comfort and the means to secure that comfort. He goes on to say, I have been assigned months of misery and troubled nights have been allotted to me. If in bed I say, when shall I rise? The night drags on and I am filled with restlessness until the dawn. So Job has this restlessness. And I think this is a sign that he hasn't kind of fully given up, that he's still, he's not fully committed to a nihilistic or atheist existence. Because Restlessness is, is this idea that man still has some desire to him. He's restless because whether, even though he may say that all life is nothing but pain and drudgery and the night drags on and all these different things, 
it's still that there's something that gnaws at him and there's something that keeps him awake at night. That he's, he's not willing to fully commit to the idea that existence is nothing but, nothing but work, nothing but comfort. I want to draw on some ideas here, particularly the writings and the thought and philosophy of Viktor Frankl. When it comes to the idea of suffering and meaning, there's no one else better than Viktor Frankl. So Frankl says that in suffering from something, we move inward, inwardly away from it in order to establish some sort of psychological distance from us and the thing that's causing us pain. And as long as we are suffering from this condition of what not ought to be, that we remain in this state of tension between what actually is on one hand and what ought to be on the other. And only while this state of tension can we continue to envision the ideal. And I think this state of tension is what the prophet Job is trying to get at. That when he says, I am restless until the dawn, what he's saying is, I still have this tension within me. I, I still have an ideal that I have in my mind. There's still something I, that I know that life is more than this. There's an ideal life I'm picturing, and it's, and it's not this endless cycle of work and, and leisure, but it's, it's something greater. Frankl is known for his concept of, of the will to meaning, that man and humans, we are beings that are seekers and searchers of meaning. And in fact, in the midst of that search, when looking for meaning, we can find it even amidst suffering. Suffering can be a source of meaning for us, or in our suffering, we find meaning. Frankl poses this question, would you strike out or erase all the suffering of your past? And he says that most people, he thinks, would answer no, because suffering matures us and we grow because of our sufferings. That even though it appears as though we're, we're trapped in this endless cycle that Job is talking about, and that perhaps we experience this restless tension it is in that tension, it is in that restlessness that we can find meaning amidst our, our suffering, that our suffering is, in a sense, calling us to, or posing a question to us, either calling or posing a question to us about what is our ultimate values? Where are we going to find meaning? Job goes on to say, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle. They come to an end without hope. Remember that my life is like the wind and I shall not see happiness again. So in this passage, or in this, this, uh, this verse, we have a few ideas going on. We have the idea of hope, the nature of hope. We have the idea of despair, since you know, he's without hope. And then we have the idea of, of happiness. So faith is concerned with the humanly unknowable, but the divinely revealed. That's one way we can describe faith. Likewise, hope is concerned with the humanly impossible, but the divinely achieved. By hoping in God's goodness and power, what we're saying is, or hope says to us, it will turn out well. That even though for you or for me or for you know, humans, what we hope for is impossible, it is not impossible for God. However, despair is kind of the exact opposite of that, that things will turn out badly for me. In Christian philosophy, we would say that despair is not something which man falls into, that you know, we're kind of walking along or living our lives and all of a sudden 
despair, where you've fallen into it like you've fallen into a hole. For Christians, despair is a decision of the will. It's not a mood, but it's actually an act of our intellect. It's something that we choose, not something we fall into. It's something that we posit. That despair is the opposite or negative side of fulfillment. That's what Frankel would say. It's our attitude towards suffering, and our attitude towards suffering is despair, that things will not turn out well for me. But that's something that we have to choose. Despair or suffering presents itself to us. It poses a question about us finding meaning, and we have a choice in that. That's what Christian moral philosophy is trying to say, is suffering comes, and we have the attitudinal choice or the, the willful choice to be hopeful in our suffering and find meaning and fulfillment or to despair and find hopelessness. So in a sense, Job is right. You will not be happy if you choose that as your attitude towards life, that indeed life is meaningless. If that is your choice, that is what you will find. And fundamentally, uh, someone like Joseph Pieper will say, for Christian, despair is a decision against Christ. That in despair, in the kind of the nature of the sin of that, it becomes a, a conflict with reality. It comes in conflict with reality. That despair is the denial to the way of fulfillment. What we're saying is our desires and our hopes can never be fulfilled in despair. But what's even kind of more interesting is that the pain of despair lies in the fact that it denies the way to fulfillment. That in despair, man actually denies his own desire. That man, again, in the words of Frankel, man is a searcher and a, and a seeker of meaning and fulfillment. And what despair does is work against that and work against our desires. By nature, we look for purpose and we look for meaning. So despair is acting against our nature and against our innate desires to find these things. That's the pain of it. Is, is, that's the pain that Job is describing here is, I know that my life will come to an end without hope. I know that my life is like the wind. It just kind of blows where it wills and I won't ever see happiness. The pain is in that decision of the will to give up looking for fulfillment and hope. On the topic of happiness, Frankel offers a kind of unique uh, understanding of happiness, something that you know I'd be curious to expand upon this more some other time, but it seems almost uh, contra Aristotle. You know, Aristotle will say that happiness is that which every man acts for. That's the, the end. If you ask somebody why they're doing something, and you keep asking them, well, why this, why that, why that, so on and so forth, the end result will be happiness. I want to be happy. But Frankel's, in, in Frankel's philosophy and his psychology, man does not normally or primarily seek after pleasure and happiness. Instead, pleasure and happiness are the side effects of living out a life of transcendence, of self-transcendence and existence. So once one has served a cause, or even better, once one has been involved in loving another human being, he says, happiness occurs by itself. So happiness is, for Frankel, happiness is a byproduct of achievement, that happiness itself cannot be pursued. It is the very pursuit of happiness that frustrates happiness. The more one makes happiness the end and aim, the, the more he misses that aim. Frankl's attitude towards finding happiness is, in a sense, actually to find meaning, to pursue meaning and purpose instead, instead, and then you will find happiness. So when Job says that I will never see happiness again, you know, 
Frankel, I think, would say, you're right. You will never see happiness again because you have made, one, the attitudinal choice, the choice of the will to not find happiness, and two, you're not doing the things that would help you find happiness. You're not finding self-transcendence. You're not trying to seek after meaning and purpose. You've said that my life has no purpose. It's just the endless cycle of comfort and working. But if you could find purpose and meaning in your work and your you know daily wages, as Job calls it, perhaps then you would find hope and perhaps then you would find happiness. For the spiritual writers of the Catholic Church and the great mystics, suffering is always part of a union with God. That it's it's really not for God's sake that we suffer, or it's not for someone else's sake, but it's actually for our own sake. It's for our own maturing and our own kind of chiseling out and making us and making us more, uh, in the words of mystics, godlike. It, it brings us to a, a higher holiness if we suffer well. And someone who, of course, talks about this topic of suffering well is St. John of the Cross. St. John says that the soul that walks sec- most securely is when it's suffering with God. The suffering is a sure and more advantageous way to union with God than joy. And he says there's two reasons for this. First, in suffering, strength is given to the soul by God. It's not our own power that kind of, you know, we white-knuckle it through suffering, but it's God who helps us. Second, in suffering, he says that the virtues are practiced and acquired, that in suffering, that's where God tries us, and that's where God kind of purifies our loves. And again, we're posed with the ultimate questions of our life, and this is where we demonstrate our faith and our hope and our love. It's easy, kind of what St. John the Cross is saying, is that it's easy to say that we love God and that we have faith when all is going well, but when we're suffering, if we still have these, we still make the fundamental choice of hope and not despair, then that's when we actually begin to grow in holiness and virtue amidst our sufferings and not just joy. St. John takes up the question, why do so few people reach perfect union with God? Why do so few people reach the highest levels of contemplation and perfection? And he says, it's not because God doesn't will it. In fact, God wills that all would be perfect and that it's not just a few that he selects, but all. However, he finds so few people that will endure what it requires to reach high perfection. St. John the Cross says, since he tries them in little things and finds them so weak that they immediately flee from work, unwilling to be subject to discomfort and mortification, it follows that in finding them not strong and faithful in the little which he requires, he realizes they will be much less strong in greater trials. So God gives us these little trials of, of faith, you know, little sufferings, and by which he means to purify us. And he says that, St. John the Cross says that so few people can endure even ordinary suffering, even basic sufferings, that then God says, okay, kind of pulls back and says, I want to purify you and I want to raise you to higher levels of contemplation and holiness, but you haven't suffered this small trial well. Maybe we'll try again. But if you can't do this well, then you probably cannot suffer greater trials that are necessary to grow to grow in the heights of holiness. So really the blame is on us for not suffering well. And I think that's a key takeaway from our first reading is the need to learn how to suffer 
well to make use of our sufferings. Do not let them go to waste. That God in our sufferings is calling us and talking to us. And as I've mentioned before, the voice of God can be found in our sufferings. But only if we make that fundamental choice to find God's voice in suffering, to to hear him there. We, if we do not develop the eyes to see and the ears to hear, then suffering is useless. It's meaningless. We'll choose despair. But if we decide for God to, to find him there, then we will. So on the topic of God, I would like to switch to the psalm. Our psalm comes from 147, and we have the refrain, praise the Lord who heals the brokenhearted. So the brokenhearted. Every time I hear that, I, or at least I used to think of romance, right? That's, of course, where, where our mind goes when we think of a broken heart. We think of a failed romantic adventure. I, I would like to kind of expand upon this and delve into what does the heart in Scripture symbolize? All throughout Scripture, we get varying Im- images and symbols of what the heart is. So on one hand, the heart is the center of emotion. It's a place of feeling. It's a place of moods and passions. On the other, it can be something a little bit higher. The heart is a place of thought and reflection of our conscience and our willful choices, volitions. It's a place of devotion and obedience. You know, it's the one who surrenders their heart to God, surrenders their obedience and their devotion to God. Keeping with that in mind, keeping the idea that the heart is kind of the place of of, I would say, aspirations or hopes and fears. When it says that God heals the brokenhearted, what he's saying is he heals kind of our our broken desires, our broken hopes and our broken fears, that there are intentions and, and plans and dreams and ideals that we have that are often, for one reason or another throughout life, broken and destroyed. You know, perhaps taking the first reading, Job had a greater picture for his life. You know, if, if we look at the beginning of Job, he was a good, pious man, and he, ha- he was very blessed with a prosperous life. But then it was all taken from him. That could break one's heart. That could dash one's dreams and hopes. So how does God come and, and heal these? I would say that he, God heals us by giving us what we need. It's cliche, but it's true that we don't get always what we want, but he gives us what we need. So in healing, things don't go back just to the way they were. It's even true in the story of Job. Job is actually restored, you know, uh, you know, twofold of what he lost. So he doesn't just go back to the same blessings, but greater blessings. And there's perhaps a lesson here that, again, suffering matures us, chisels us. It's ma- it makes us holy if we allow it to work on us that way, if we allow ourselves to find meaning in our suffering. And if we do, God will restore the, the brokenness that we experienced in suffering. Again, it may not be the way we think, and it might not be that God restores us to perfect health or something like that. But God can heal individuals without just giving them back what they wanted. You know, I think people can be healed, not physically, but spiritually, right? So, you know, somebody who prays to be healed while on a sick bed or while they're in the hospital, they may be healed in their spirit. They may come to some realization about God and they may grow closer to God and they you know, may maybe receive the sacraments or something like that they haven't in a while. I would say God has healed them. They may still be sick, but he has healed them on a greater level, on a way that they needed 
but maybe not in the way they wanted. So the, the psalm this week is broken up into three parts or three kind of blocks, block verses. So the first one is, praise the Lord for he is good. Sing praise to our God for he is gracious. And then the next one is, second one, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And he calls the, he calls the number of the stars. He calls each by name. And then the third part, great is our Lord and mighty in power. So there's three elements here that are being brought together. God's goodness, God's power, and God's care. So we have to remember that when we say the Lord is good and the Lord is powerful, we don't mean that God is good in the same way that man is good. In the words of philosophy, what we'll say is the terms we use of God are analogical, not univocal. So the meanings are not wholly the same. They're kind of modified. They're partly the same and partly different. So God is good in a similar way to man. You know, that, that man's goodness participates in God's goodness. But also that God is good on a totally different level than we are. We are good by participation. Goodness is something kind of additional to us. But God is goodness itself. He is good. It seems that as though in the light of suffering, in the light of the first reading, how can we hold this? Because God is good, but he allows suffering. But he's also powerful that he could stop suffering. So what, what, do, we, what do we make of all this? But yet, keeping in mind what we just said, that God is good in a different way than man, we see that God does not save us from all suffering, but he shouldn't that he sees in his infinite wisdom just what suffering we need for our ultimate fulfillment and happiness. That would, we would be you know, spiritually spoiled, as it were, if he saved us from everything. You, know, you can think of human fathers who, in, in, a, in some sense, allow their children to suffer in proper context. You know, you know, human fathers are not God. They can't bring good from evil. You know, in pushing their children to try new things or to, to stick it out with sports or, you know, trying them or pushing them to read and write and such like that, there is a bit of, of a suffering there. But because at this moment the father possesses greater wisdom and knowledge than the child, he's allowing this suffering for their good. So in our first reading, when Job is talking about how, you know, he's looking around him and he's all this suffering and and the endless cycle of life and how it all seems meaningless is this suffering is actually good for Job if he, if he approaches it in the right manner. Again, if he chooses hope and not despair, that this suffering is actually pointing him towards his fulfillment and the meaning that he needs in his life. And it's actually happiness, that, that it's possible to be happy in the midst of suffering but only if you trust in God's goodness. That there is something about God that we don't know, that God has some plan that perhaps is only, we only see kind of in, in shadows and, and veiled images. But if we trust in God's goodness, we know that all will, will work out for us. We hope that all will be well. As the second verse says, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. In fact, he, he numbers the stars and he calls each by name. This is the idea that God heals because he cares, that he's, he, another word for caring, we could say here is loving. God is all, 
all goodness, but he's also all loving. But it's a love demonstrated to us oftentimes in ways that we don't understand explicitly. Again, if we think back to Viktor Frankl's question, if you were to look back over your life and all the sufferings that you've experienced, would you change them? I think many people, depending upon, you know, I think circumstance and sufferings, would say, no, I wouldn't. Because if you've suffered well, if you've suffered in the way St. John of the Cross said, in union with God to grow in holiness, you would realize that the person you are today is not possible without those sufferings. That there was some mysterious plan that you didn't quite understand, but that yet, yet you submitted to in hope that all would turn out well, that you, you have a fundamental belief, as Job did, that God is good and that God is loving. And whatever he does, he does with our ultimate fulfillment and happiness in mind. And trusting in that, you are who you are because of those sufferings, that you submitted to that and it molded you into a holier person and a, and a better person. Now for the, the third verse from the psalm, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. To his wisdom there is no limit. The Lord sustains the lowly. So here we have this, we have an idea that God is all-powerful, but he's not just power. Because if he's just power, then we can't expect any goodness from him. That perhaps he has the ability to be exalted above all things and, and master all things, but in the end, things may not turn out well because he's not good and he's not loving. He's only power. What the psalmist is trying to say is that these three attributes of God, love, goodness, and power, all exist in God in a perfect way. Again, in man, we, you know, we have kind of maybe too much goodness and not enough power, too much power, not enough goodness, not enough loving, maybe too much loving. But these are equally and perfectly balanced in God. He possesses them in their fullness and in perfection. So when he loves us, he loves us perfectly. When he's good to us, he's good to us perfectly. And when he demonstrates his power, he demonstrates his power perfectly. So in the moment, in, with our human perceptions, we think of our suffering as unjust. He's not powerful enough to stop it. He's not loving because he wouldn't let me suffer. Or he's not good because he wouldn't let me suffer. But again, remembering that all these things are, that are balanced, that in his power, he doesn't abandon you in your suffering, but he sustains you, as the psalmist, that, psalmist says. And that, in fact, in the midst of your suffering, he's healing your broken heart and he's binding up your wounds. That he, he knows each of the stars by name. So how much more does he care for you? And then his goodness. That God is, is supremely good to us, despite our sufferings. And all three of these must be must be acknowledged and exist together. That if any one of them was out of balance, God would not be God. So trusting that these three attributes do exist equally and imperfectly, we hope that all will turn out well for us in our sufferings. So something I want to turn to in the, the second reading is, just briefly, is St. Paul's uh, phrase here, to the weak I became weak to win over the weak. I have become all things to all to save at least some. So certainly when the idea of suffering in St. Paul, St. Paul suffered greatly to, to preach the gospel. But I, keeping with suffering, there, there is this humbling aspect 
and I, I don't know if this is the right word for it, humanizing aspect to suffering. That when when we suffer, our our pride and our egos, if we're willing to submit to suffering well, are greatly lowered. They're broken so that we can be healed by God again to become humble. When you suffer, and then you, you become a little less judgmental, you become a little less harsh, a little bit kinder, a little bit more loving, because you, re- you realize just how weak you are. And if I'm weak, I'm a human. I have a human nature, human soul, human body. If I'm weak, what does that make my neighbor? What does that make other people? Perhaps they're weak too. And perhaps it's not in my strength that I preach to them. It's not in my strength that I witness to them. But it's actually in my weakness. And then in my weakness and suffering, in some way I become all things to all. That it's not in, in glory or in, per, you know, as St. Paul says, uh, persuasive language and philosophy. But it's in our very human experience of, of existential suffering that everybody, no matter what, eventually suffers that we are in the way of, of death you know that there's a continual kind of dying and rebirth to our life and if we tap into that we realize that this is the plot this is the this is the the lot of all humanity that i may become all things all people in my suffering and that in suffering and in pain and weakness that's how i proclaim the power of the gospel Speaking of gospel, let's switch to the gospel of the day. Our gospel is coming from St. Mark still. We're in year B, so we'll be in Mark for a while. And it's the scene with Simon's or St. Peter's mother-in-law that she's sick with a fever. So he brings Christ to her and Christ heals her. So we might say that in the scene of St. Peter's mother-in-law, she is a symbol of for all of Christ's triumphs over suffering, sickness, and death. Whether Christ comes and heals us during our life or at the end of life, the response should be, as her response was, to rise and to wait on the Lord. That spiritually, we may say that sickness brought Christ to her. That without her sickness, would she have experienced Christ? Again, suffering is an invitation. It's an invitation to Hear the voice of Christ speaking to you. It's an invitation to let Christ in. It's Suffering is a way to break down our ego. It breaks our heart because we, we thought life would be one thing. We thought it would go one way, but it, it's going another way, and it breaks our intentions. It breaks our dreams, our hopes, our desires, our ideals so that they may be healed in a more perfected manner. Sickness is something that can be experienced by all people. And even if you live a very healthy life, there is always the sickness of death. Like, you know, or even if you know, you, you're taking all your vitamins and everything you need and eating healthy and working out, you just get sick. There's a sort of cosmic injustice about it that I did all the right things. How am I sick? And it's just the, again, it's the lot of, of, hum, of fallen humans that we get sick. But without our sickness and without our suffering, perhaps Christ would never come to us. We would, we would never experience it. We, we're, we're brokenhearted that we're sick because it stops our, or interrupts our dreams and what we interrupts our life in that interruption, in that heartbreak. 
that's where Christ comes to meet us. That's where he comes and he, he grasped her hand and he helped her. S- that suffering makes us weak, but perhaps we need to be brought down, that we need to break our egos and break our, our wills and, and our pride to be humbled, to be helped by Christ. Because otherwise we might, you know, as St. John the Cross said, we might think that we can do life on our own, by our own action and our own joys. But in fact, it's actually in the midst of suffering that we find Christ much more securely. That it's, I, I'm, I'm not enjoying the presence of Christ and, and friendship and faith in Christ because life is going well, but because it's, I'm being tested when life, is going pure, when life is going poorly. When I'm sick in bed with a fever, like, like St. Peter's mother-in-law, but again, if we take St. Peter's mother-in-law and her sickness as a symbol, we see here is Christ is the one that has the final say over sickness and death. It's Christ that comes to meet us and conquers all of those, heals our broken hearts. He binds up our wounds because he is goodness, he is power, he is loving. And we can experience those three attributes supremely in the midst of our suffering if we choose hope and not despair. I think that's where I will end it for today. Remember, if you have any questions or anything you'd like me to expand upon, please email me at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next week.